Well, that's one of my favorite songs, and it's probably one of yours too, and it's just good for us this morning to be able to hear that song, and we look forward to the time in just a couple of weeks when we can begin having services in this room with people in this room, and that's going to be an exciting thing, singing songs like that and other songs and just beginning the process of being back together. But let me add my welcome to you and my good morning, and thanks for worshiping with us today, and I hope that you're doing well, and we certainly are excited about June the 7th when we can start being back together and and worshiping the Lord uh, together in this place. For those of you who are members of First Baptist, you know that this service is being filmed and being recorded uh, in the worship center. But we have many who watch us on Sundays who've never been to Pasadena and never been in our facilities. And as beautiful as this room is, we have another room to my right, to your left, that is called our chapel. And in that chapel, we have lots of weddings and lots of funerals and and uh, some smaller services, and it's an absolutely beautiful room. That chapel, is cons- it consists of uh, 45 stained glass windows, and each one of those windows, in one way or another, has something to do with the life of Christ. And so we designed it that way so that when you walk in the chapel, you can, you can see uh, depictions of Jesus, and you can just be mindful of his presence. Well, several months ago on a Wednesday night, I thought it would be a good idea for me to preach an entire sermon about all 45 of those stained glass windows. And I was going to spend just maybe a minute or even less than a minute on each window. This was in late October, maybe in November. And I thought it would be a beautiful thing to do. And while the sun was still out and... uh, you know, the, the, the windows were, were lit up by the sun. I thought that would be a good thing for me to point out what each window symbolized while you could see the window. Well, I got through about five or six windows and I had mistimed my sermon and I had spoken too long about the windows that I had talked about and the sun completely set. And even though we had lights in the building, you didn't have the sunlight lighting up those windows. And so I was trying to point out windows that were now completely black and nobody could see what I was talking about. And so I said to the congregation that night, I said, well, this service is over. This sermon is done. We can't even see the windows. We'll pick it up next week. And so I ended up spending about three or four weeks talking about those windows. Well, when the service was over, I was talking to my dad. We were leaving the chapel and getting ready to come back to the offices. And he said to me, he said, John, that was an interesting sermon. He said, obviously, you ran out of time and it got dark and you could pick it up next week. And then he made a statement that, It just gripped me when he said it, because when he said it, I thought, not only is that statement true of what happened to us in the chapel tonight, but that statement is true when it comes to how the world will one day end. Here's what he said. He said, John, when the sun goes down this time of year, it goes down in a hurry. And I thought, well, that's exactly right, because when I was starting those windows, I thought I had plenty of time. If that would have been in July or August when we had longer days, I thought I could have made it all the way around. But here's what he said. When the sun goes down this time of year, the sun goes down in a hurry. And I never have forgotten that. And again, I've always equated that statement, not only to the setting of the sun in the fall and in the winter, but to how the sun will one day set on this world. Now, as I said last week, this coronavirus, COVID-19, is not the end of the world. The great tribulation will be the end of the world. What we're experiencing right now is the prelude to the end of the world. This is not the end of a game, if you wanted to use a football analogy, but I'll tell you what I believe it is. It's the two-minute warning. And as we saw last Sunday morning, 
As we get towards the two-minute warning, which is the signal of the end of the game, there will be all kind of signs that God is allowing into the world to get our attention. There will be earthquakes, there will be wars, there will be famines. As we saw last week, there will be pestilences. And that Greek word is loimos, L-O-I-M-O-S, talked about it a lot last week. And it literally means an infectious disease, a deadly contagious, infectious disease. And that's exactly what this COVID-19 is. And so it is God's way of saying, hey, this is not the end of the game, but it's the two-minute warning. And the end of the game is closer than it has ever been. Now, as we're going to see in the message this morning, there are two things, there are more than two things, but there, there are two things that will describe and characterize the environment during the Great Tribulation when the game is just about completely over. And in fact, as we now are approaching the two-minute warning, or maybe we've already reached the two-minute warning, these two things are very much describing the world in which we live today. And if you want to jot these down, it might be an interesting thing for you because this sermon is going to be different, but hopefully it will be interesting. If you're a person who likes to think about Bible prophecy and study the book of Revelation, I think this sermon is going to be right down your alley. If you're one of those people that says, well, you know, Bible prophecy is not really my thing, and I never have been able to understand the book of Revelation anyway. Well, if you'll just stay with me for the next half hour, I believe this message will be a blessing to you because I'm going to make it practical, and I'm going to make it where you can say, well, you know what? I understand now what the Bible is saying. But before we get into the book of Revelation, two things that will describe the environment as this world winds down and as the sun sets on it. First of all, false religion and secondly, dirty politics. In fact, that is the title of this message, False Religion and Dirty Politics. Now, I want to define both of those expressions, and what do I mean, first of all, by false religion? Well, simply this. False religion is any religion that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me say that again. False religion is any religion that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, if I wanted to, I could just list a long uh, string of religions and say, this one's false, this one's false, this one's false, this one's false. But I think our definition is so inclusive that any, any religion that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is a false religion. Now, before we get into the book of Revelation, I wish you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. It is towards the end of the New Testament. In fact, it is very close to the book of Revelation. And I want to show you some verses in 1 John chapter number 2 and beginning in verse number 18. And here's what the Apostle John is saying. He said, little children, it is the last hour. Now, before we read on, let me comment on that. He said it's the last hour. Maybe you remember back in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 where Paul said, we're living in the last days. John is writing years later than Paul wrote, and John is saying it is the last hour. Paul died 30 or 40 years before John died. John lived to be close to 100 years of age, if not, if not 100 years of age. And so 30 or 40 years after the apostle Paul died, John said to his readers, you need to understand something. When Paul wrote, it was the last days. But as I'm writing, it is the last hour. Now think about this. It was the last hour 2,000 years ago. So if metaphorically speaking, 2,000 years ago, it was the last hour 
what is it today? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's the two-minute warning. It's the last minutes of the game. And here's what John described as the environment that would dominate the last hour. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And so when he's talking about many Antichrists have come, there's only one Antichrist, one person who will be the Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist has been around for a long time. What is the spirit of Antichrist? It is any religion or anybody that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And John said, this is a sign that we're in the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lies of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And that word Christ means Lord, Master, King. And so anybody who denies that is a liar. He is Antichrist. He may not be the Antichrist, but he has the spirit of Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Now, verse 23 is interesting to me. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. Who, he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And so there are many in the world who say, well, you know, I don't accept Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus, but I, I believe in God the Father. Now, John says, if you don't acknowledge the Son, you don't have the Father. And so that, that too is the spirit of Antichrist. So again, a false religion is any religion that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, how about dirty politics? What do I mean when I, when I make the statement, dirty politics? Dirty politics could be defined lots of ways, but I'll define it this way. When politicians are more concerned with power, prestige, and popularity than they are with people. Let me say that again. Dirty politics happens when politicians are more concerned with power, their own power, their own prestige, and their own popularity than they are with people. Because if you're not concerned about the people, you're only going to do what's best for you. So dirty politics is when a politician says, hey, I'm in it for me. I'm in it for, for what I can get out of this. Forget the people. It's all about me. And if you have that attitude, then it's going to, you're going to be deceptive. You're going to do whatever is best for you. And that is the Antichrist. The Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation is going to make a peace treaty with Israel. And he's going to say to everyone on the earth, you can worship whoever you want to worship. The Jews can go back into Jerusalem. They can rebuild the temple. There's not been a temple in Jerusalem for almost 2,000 years. And so he's going to say, you can go back, rebuild the temple. If you're this religion, you can do that. If you're that religion, you can do this. And he's going to make a peace treaty with them. But as we'll see, later in this message, three and a half years into the great tribulation, he will break that peace treaty. He will, by this time, the temple will have been rebuilt in Jerusalem. He will set up his own throne in the holiest place in that temple. It's described in the, in the gospels as the abomination of desolation. He will demand now that he be worshiped, so now he'll not just let the Jews worship God and he'll not let everybody else worship whoever they want to worship. He will demand that he be worshiped 
This is when the mark of the beast will be given, and people who will not worship uh, the Antichrist, he will turn against them, and he will kill them. It's dirty politics, because at the beginning, he says, hey, worship whoever you want to. Halfway through, he shows his true colors. He says, it never was about you. It was always about me. I've always wanted to be worshiped. I've always wanted to be God, and now I demand that you worship me. And so, having said that, if you'll turn now to the book of Revelation, I'm just kind of laying the foundation, getting us ready for our study today, and today we're going to be in Revelation chapter number 17. And so, I'm going to have an opportunity for the next few minutes to do something I don't think I've ever done in all my life, and that is to preach an entire sermon out of Revelation chapter 17. And in doing this, I want to give you an opportunity to do something I doubt you've ever done, and that is to hear an entire sermon out of Revelation chapter 17. I'm not saying you never have. Maybe you have. I'm saying I've never preached one, and I don't know how many sermons I've ever heard out of Revelation chapter 17. So, even if you've heard one before, I bet you haven't heard too many. And today, when we're studying it, I hope that this will be a blessing to you. So remember now, the theme, if you wanted to write a theme over Revelation chapter 17, false religion and dirty politics. Now let's just dive right in and begin reading. Let's pick up in verse number uh, one. But before we start reading, let me say this. Revelation 17 and 18 is not describing any new judgments that will happen after the bold judgments. As we saw last week, when the bold judgments are finished, the wrath of God is done. In fact, if you look back in chapter 16 and in verse number 17, verse 17, it said, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And so when this seventh bowl is turned upside down, and the wrath and judgment of God is poured out on the earth, God says, It is done. No more judgment. And so in chapters 17 and 18, we're not reading about new and additional judgments. What we're getting in these two chapters is a highlight of some of the things that happened during the seven-year period of tribulation, during the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgment. So when we get to John 17, or Revelation 17 and 18, the apostle John steps back, as it were, and he highlights some things that have already taken place. And so let's just dive right in. Verse number one of Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman. I wish you'd just underline those two words, a woman, sitting on a scarlet beast. Now underline those three words, a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And so John is describing what he is seeing. He's seeing a woman and he's seeing a beast. Now, first of all, who is the woman? She's referred to in verse one as a harlot. And now he describes her in verse three as a woman. In Bible prophecy, women always refer to religion. Sometimes it's good Sometimes it's bad. It's good, for example, we read in the Bible that we as Christians are the bride of Christ. Well, there's a reference to a woman, but that's a beautiful, that's a good reference. 
But here, it's not the bride of Christ, it's a harlot, it's a wicked, evil woman. And what is this that John is describing when he describes this woman? He's talking about uh, the false religion, and this will become clearer as we go through the uh, as we go through this chapter. And then he talks about the beast. Now, who is the beast? Well, the beast, of course, is the Antichrist. And we read this term 36 times in the book of Revelation, the beast. It's always called the beast. In 1 John, he's actually called the Antichrist. But in Revelation, he doesn't go by, we don't get that full name. He's just described as the beast. Now turn back to chapter number 11. I want to show you one verse. We saw this months and months ago, but it'd be good to see it today. In Revelation chapter number 11 and in verse number 7, this is the first reference we have in the book of Revelation to the Antichrist. Revelation eleven seven. when they finished their testimony, that's talking about the two witnesses at that point in the tribulation, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. And so where does the, where does the beast come from? He comes from the bottomless pit and it comes from a, from a demonic world and presumably will inhabit a human body. It's a devilish, demonic person. But this is the very first reference we have to him. Now, turn to chapter number 13, because in chapter number 13, we have a description in the first eight verses of the Antichrist. I don't want to read all those verses, but we read in chapter 17 about how he'll have seven heads. Uh, We'll look in verse number three. This is all metaphorical language, but notice what it says. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, remember, the beast is the Antichrist. He hates Jesus. He's jealous of Jesus. He wants the same worship and adoration that is reserved only for Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. He was buried. He came back to life again. There will come a point in the tribulation where the Antichrist will be wounded, but he will stage a fake death. And it will appear as though he has been killed. And then he will come back to life again, trying to mimic Jesus, trying to look like Jesus, trying to portray himself as one who has conquered death. And when he does that, he's going to get a great following. Now, bring that out early in the message, because as we work through chapter 17, John's going to make a reference back to those two things that we've just seen. So that will make it uh, good later on. So we have the woman representing false religion, and we have the beast representing the Antichrist. Now look in verse number four. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And so this woman is beautiful on the outside, but she is wicked and evil on the inside. And on her forehead, a name was written. Now watch this, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so now this woman is being described as the mother of harlots, Babylon the great. Okay, false, all false religion can be traced back and has its roots in Babylon. Babylon is located Uh, in modern-day Iraq. It is 50 miles south of Baghdad. And in the Bible, we read in different places about Babylon, but we also read in Genesis chapter 11 about a place called Babel. 
and where back in way early times, the people decided they would build a tower up to God and they would make a name for themselves and they would make a city for themselves and they would be great. And so they're building this tower up to God. And in Genesis chapter 11, the Bible says God came down to see this thing they were doing and how they were building this tower up to God. And God was angry as they were trying to build a monument to themselves. And what did God do? God confused their languages and God scattered the people all over the world. And now people are having to move to places where they understand the languages that are being spoken. And so it was called Babel because when they started talking, it sounded like they were babbling. And the name Babel and the name Babylon literally mean confusion. And that's what false religion is. It is confusion. The people building that tower were confused and they were trying to make a name for themselves instead of trying to glorify God's name. Now look in verse number six. John said, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs. A reference to the fact that many genuine Christians will be killed during the tribulation and they will be killed by these who are practicing false religion and even following the Antichrist. And John said, when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now look at verses seven and eight. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the 10 horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit, the abyss. We just read that in chapter number 11. That's where he came from. And go to perdition, destruction. Ultimately, the Antichrist will go to hell to the lake of fire. And it says, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So he was and then he is not. He was appeared to be killed, and now he's come back on the scene again. Now look in verse number nine. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And so perhaps this is a reference to Rome. Maybe so, maybe not. Some say yes, some say not. Rome is known as a city that is surrounded by seven mountains. And so maybe this is the revived Roman Empire. Maybe not. Some most theologians, I think, would say it's virtually impossible to tell where the Antichrist will, will center and headquarter his religion one day. Will it be in ancient Babylon, 50 miles south of Baghdad? Will, will that area become the headquarters for the Antichrist? Will it be the revived Roman Empire? Well, it's just not clear exactly where that will be. But look in verse number 10. There are also seven kings. So these seven heads that the Antichrist had is, is representing these seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Now what in the world? This is some deep stuff. This is why people get tripped up in Revelation. They say, how could anybody ever understand this? Well, it is a very difficult book to understand. And I don't claim to have the full knowledge of this book. I learn every time I study something I didn't know before. And in studying for this, these seven kings, it says five have fallen. It is talking about five kingdoms, five empires that have risen and fallen by the time John wrote this apocalypse, this book of the Revelation. Who, which, which kingdoms? The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. You don't even have to be a student of the Bible 
to know about those five dominant world empires. You just have to be a student of world history to know that those were the five first kingdoms, in the, the Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. So those have all, those have fallen, John says. And then he says, one is. So there's one kingdom that's, that's happening at the time John wrote this. That was the Roman Empire. When John wrote Revelation, it was all about Rome. Rome ruled the world. And then he says, and the other has not yet come. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to the Antichrist. And then he says, and when he comes, the Antichrist, he must continue a short time. Verse 11, the beast that was and is not and is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. And so the Antichrist is one of the seven leaders of the world. After the Roman Empire that fell a long, long time ago, there has not been one empire that rules the world. Now, America is a superpower, but I don't think you could, nobody could say that, that America is an empire that rules the world. China is not an empire that rules the world. Since when, from the time that Rome fell until now, there's not been an empire that, will rule, that has ruled the world. But when Antichrist comes, he will rule the world. Very significant that we understand that. The Antichrist, just like these other empires, will rule the world. So he's one of the seven, but as we saw earlier, he's going to stage a death and then a resurrection. And so after that, he's going to now be considered the eighth empire. It's like he had his empire, he was killed, he came back. And so he's one of the seven, but he's also is now on, he's the eighth empire. So the Antichrist is the seventh and the eighth uh, leader of the world in verse number. And it says, and is of the seven and is going to perdition, destruction. He's headed to, to hell, but he's not there yet. Verse 12, the 10 horns, which you saw are 10 Kings who have received no kingdoms as yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings of the beast. These ten, these ten kings, that on the, these ten horns on the Antichrist ahead that are representing these, these, uh, these, these ten kings, they're like puppet kings who do whatever the Antichrist tells them to do. And for a short time, they're going to have some uh, authority. Look in verse number 13 and 13 and 14. They, these, these ten kings are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So they just, they just serve the beast. They're puppet kings. Verse 14, these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So these kings working under the authority of Antichrist, will, will eventually challenge Jesus Christ himself to a battle, the Lamb of God. And that will be the battle of Armageddon in chapter 19 that we'll get to eventually. But it's talking about how these kings are going to challenge Jesus and Jesus will overcome them. He will put them down. Now look in verses 15 through 17. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their heart to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And so the this harlot, this woman is sitting on top of these waters. The waters represent people. The woman represents the, the false religion of the day. 
And there's coming a time when the, the people, the woman, is going to turn against uh, the people, and these ten kings which are on the earth are going to turn against the people and is going to kill the people. And so think about what I said earlier. At the beginning of the tribulation, Antichrist is going to make a peace covenant. Worship whoever you want to worship. If you're Jewish, worship the God of the Old Testament. If you're some other religion, worship your God. But halfway in, and this comes out in Revelation chapter number 13. I didn't go to all those verses, but it says at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will be given 42 months. That's three and a half years. And at this point, the mark of the beast will be given and the Antichrist will demand that he be worshipped. Now think, this is dirty politics. Because at the beginning, he said, worship whoever you want to and everything's fine. And so the picture is now that the, this harlot, this beast, is turning, the harlot and the beast and these kings are all turning against the people and they're all killing the people on the earth. Again, I want you just to see verse, verse number 15. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, these 10, ten kings now, these will hate the harlot make her desolate and naked. That is, the harlot is representing false religion. And so the 10 kings now are going to kill those who are not worshiping the Antichrist and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And even we see in verse 17, that's part of God's judgment, even though that's what the Antichrist is motivating these kings to do, to kill all the people who are not worshiping him. God now is using this as his just judgment to carry out his judgment and wrath uh, on those who have rejected Jesus Christ and who have blasphemed the name of God. And so the Antichrist, I cannot say enough bad things about him. He is the devil in the flesh. He is no peacemaker. The devil is no peacemaker. The devil is no friend. I'll tell you what kind of person the devil is. The devil tempts and entices us to sin. And many times we take the bait and do what he entices us to do. And after we sin, he turns around and accuses us. And that's what he's going to do during the tribulation. They're going to be riding, as it were, on the Antichrist. It says back in verse number 7, it says, it says that uh, the woman uh, was carried by the beast. The beast carries her very much like uh, an animal would carry a person. The Antichrist is going to carry these who are practicing false religion. And at three and a half years in the tribulation, he's going to turn on them and he's going to kill them. Now, I know this has been a heavy, heavy sermon. And so I want to lighten it up here. In preparing this sermon, I read a little song that I want to just read you today. And I think it will give you a visual of how the Antichrist will turn on people during the tribulation. He's promising them peace, but he's going to destroy them. Just like the devil does that today. And the song is about a crocodile. Now, we know crocodiles are very dangerous and deadly. But it's about a, a lady who decided that she would ride on the back of a crocodile across a river, across, a, across some kind of body of water. And so listen to this song. She sailed away on a lovely summer's day on the back of a crocodile. You see, said she, he's as tame as tame can be. I'll ride him down the Nile. The croc winked his eye and the lady waved goodbye, wearing a happy smile. At the end of the ride, the lady was inside and the smile on the crocodile. 
And so this lady's looking at this crocodile, and the crocodile's winking at her, saying, let's go for a ride. And she thinks, man, this is a tame crocodile. And she gets on the back of that crocodile. And before that ride was over, that lady was in that crocodile's belly, and he had eaten her up. That's a beautiful picture of the devil. He says, ride with me, come with me. It'll be the land and the, and the life of fun and pleasure and excitement and, and, and life to the fullest. And so many people get on the devil and they go his way. And what does he do? Remember what he is. He's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And along that ride, what does he do? He turns on those who have chosen to ride on him. That's the Antichrist. That's the devil. There's absolutely nothing good about him. And then in verse 18, and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. In other words, that great city where the Antichrist will be headquartered, wherever it's written, a revived Roman empire, whether it's in Babylon or whether it's somewhere else, the woman refers to the city and the city is described by false religion and by dirty politics. Now, as we come to the end of this sermon and we think about false religion and dirty politics, and I was thinking, what, what, what are some things I could say at the end to make this a little more applicable? Hopefully it's been interesting to you, and you see that uh, the sun is indeed setting on this world. It's setting now. We're coming to the end. It's not the end, but we're coming to the end. And we certainly live in a day where there's much false religion, there are many religions out there who do not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's all false religion. It's not real. And there's much dirty politics going on in the world today. And so I thought, well, as I wrap this up, I think what I want to focus on is not so much the dirty politics. I want to focus on the false religion. Because the dirty politics ultimately is a result of the false religion. See, if things are not right spiritually, things will not be right politically. You can't have a God-centered political uh, way of life if the people themselves are not God-centered. And so the spiritual is always more important than the political, and the political is always a result of the spiritual. And so in life, there are many who just say, well, if we can just fix the political, then we'll have a better world. But friend, if you don't address the spiritual, you'll never fix the political. And so the thing that God's called us to do, certainly the thing that God's called me to do as a minister is to address the spiritual. And so I want to address the spiritual, and I want to make three statements as I close today about false religion. Not only the false religion that will characterize the tribulation, but the false religion that characterizes the world today. Number one, false religion is instigated by the devil. It's instigated by the devil. The devil is the one who hates God. He is jealous of God. All false religions are either perversions of God, replacements of God, or a denial of God. Even atheism is a false religion because it denies God. Certainly doesn't confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it's all instigated by the devil. Why did the devil get kicked out of heaven in Isaiah chapter 14? He wasn't the devil then. He was a beautiful angel. His name was Lucifer. Read it in Isaiah chapter 14. Five times that Lucifer said, I will, I will exalt myself. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will exalt myself and be like God. He wanted to be worshiped. God saw that pride. God kicked him out of heaven and he became the devil. And so false religion is always instigated by the devil. The devil doesn't want anybody to worship Jesus. And the devil will create all kinds of religions to keep people from doing so. And he's been quite successful in that. Second statement, false religion is motivated, humanly speaking, by a lot of different things. It's instigated by the devil, but it's motivated by a lot of different things. It could be pride. It could be selfishness. 
It could be family tradition. In other words, some people are the religion they are because their parents were that religion, their grandparents were that religion. And probably even those of us who are Christians, we started going to a Christian church because our parents took us to a Christian church, but there came a point where we had to make our own decision for Jesus Christ. I could say it this way. I started out in the church because my parents took me to church, but I had to make my own decision to become a Christian. But some people don't make, many people don't ever make a decision to become a Christian. They say, I'm going to just stay in the religion I came up in because that's what my parents were. Beautiful rituals. Many people like their religion because it's made up of beautiful rituals. Kind of like this woman described in Revelation 17. Beautiful on the outside. All the adornments. But wicked on the inside. And some people, some people just like the rituals. Or maybe it's just confusion. They're a member of a false religion and they didn't mean to be, but they just, they don't know about Jesus yet. They've not heard the gospel. So they're just confused. And so we need to remember that. And so we live in a day where most people think that all religions are just a different form of the same thing. And they just have the idea, well, it doesn't really matter what you are as long as you're something. I want to read you this quote, a leader of the New Age movement. The New Age movement says this, we honor the truth and beauty of all the world religions, believing that each has a seed of a kernel of the spirit that unites us. So the New Age movements is a conglomerate. It's just kind of like, let's just pull everybody together. And it's a very ecumenical thing. And there's truth in all of these different religions. Another leader of the New Age movement said this, New Agers believe that God revealed himself in Jesus, but he also revealed himself in Buddha, in Krishna, who's one of the Hindu gods, and a host of others. And so the New Agers are not against Jesus. They just say Jesus is, is one of many. He's a the Hindus have hundreds of gods. Uh, the Buddhists uh, worship their way. And so he, Buddha would be their, their holy one or the one that they would emulate. They ne- might not worship Buddha, but they would emulate Buddha. And so what the New Ages is saying is, hey, listen, God has revealed himself to us in all these different ways. And that is such a politically correct thing. And it seems so all-inclusive. And yet the problem with that line of thinking is it's wrong. It's not true. It's popular. It's palatable. It doesn't offend anybody, but it's not the truth. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, not a way or a truth. He said, I'm the life, not a life. And so Jesus, he demands our devotion. That's why I said at the beginning, false religion is any religion that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so false religion is motivated by a lot of different things. And then the third and final thing I want to say this morning is simply this. Christianity, Christianity is not so much a religion as it is a relationship with Jesus Christ who has provided a way in his death on the cross for our sins to be forgiven. You see these other religions, all of them, here's what they say. They say, here's what you need to do to be a participant in this religion. You need to to pray. You need to do this. You need to meditate. You need to clear out your mind. You need all these different things. You need to make pilgrimages to different holy sites across the world. And they, li- they give a list. All these other religions, if you will do this, then you can be part of this religion. What does Christianity say? Christianity doesn't say do. Christianity says done. D-O-N-E. 
Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done for us to have our sins forgiven and for us to have a personal relationship with God. I think back to that Tower of Babel, which was the beginning of all false religion. And I, I, in my mind, can imagine those men building that tower, erecting that city, saying, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a city, a tower that goes up into the heavens. That's a beautiful picture of false religion. We're going to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God, whoever God may be. What is Christianity? Christianity is not man building up. Christianity is God coming down. And it is God coming to this planet that we live upon. And it is Jesus Christ living 33 years of sinlessness, ultimately dying a sacrificial death on that cross, paying for our sins. And so you and I have a choice to make. How are we going to live our lives? Are we going to live our lives doing something, whatever these false religions would require us to do? Or are we going to live our lives by saying, you know what, I don't have to do anything. All thing I have to do, only thing I have to do is to place my faith in what Jesus Christ has already done for me. Friend, I, I believe what I said at the beginning. We are getting late in the game. It is the two-minute warning. The sun is setting. The world in which we live is already characterized by false religion and dirty politics. And God, through this COVID-19, through this plague, is giving us a wake-up call, and he's getting our attention. And what is God saying? God is saying to all who will listen, turn to me and be saved, all you the ends of the earth. And so with our head bowed and eyes closed today, if you would like to place your faith in Jesus Christ, to make your peace with God, not by doing religious things, not by going to religious places, not by going through religious rituals, not by meditating until your mind is clear. No, but by confessing your sins and asking Christ to save you. Today you can do that, and today you can be saved. Would you pray this prayer right now? Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. Lord, I could never be good enough. I could never go through enough rituals. I could never clear my mind enough through meditation. No, God, I need you. And by faith right now, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I just trust you. I don't look for a sign. I don't ask for a feeling. I stand on your word that if I would trust you, you would save me. And I do trust you, Jesus, right now with all of my heart. Others listening today, worshiping with us online, on Facebook, on YouTube, you're already saved. But maybe this morning God has reminded you through this message that the sun is setting on this old world. And it, when it goes down, I'm telling you, just like with me in that chapel that night, when the sun starts to go down, it goes down in a hurry. Would you just say, God, with all my heart, I don't understand everything about Bible prophecy, but I've got enough sense to know we're living in a day of wars, earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. God, something's happening. Something's coming to an end. And God, help me to spend however much time I have left serving you, loving you, sharing you with others, living my life in such a way that it would count for you. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen and amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer today, we want to know about that. And there's an address on the screen, a web address. If you would go to that and just let us know that today 
you have asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, we would love to get you some information that will be helpful to you uh, and hopefully that it will be a blessing to you. Again, we look so forward to having people back in this room two weeks from today on June the 7th. That's going to be an exciting, an exciting day. And uh, we hope that you can, uh, we'll be socially distanced and we'll be doing it the safe way. But we hope that, that many, many of you can be a part of that service that day. I do encourage you tonight at 8 o'clock. Uh, to join us for a time of prayer. We're trying to pray every night at 8 o'clock for 10 minutes. Also, we have weekday devotions uh, online every day at noon. Many people, many people are watching those. And also tonight, we've not been having Sunday night church because we're doing all these devotionals and, and uh, we're doing different things now. But we are going to have an online service tonight at 615. It is to honor our graduating seniors. And we want to do everything we can here at First Baptist to make what is a very tough time. These kids have missed their proms and, and uh, just been a weird kind of way to end their senior year in, in high school and, and even for the college students. But tonight at 6.15, we're going to have a service that will apply to all of us, but it will be designed especially for them. And so I would encourage all of those students and their families to join us tonight. But not only them, I would encourage all of us tonight at 6.15, I'm going to be preaching a sermon. And I'll say some things specifically to those college students, but it'll be something that all of us can apply to our lives. So join us tonight at 615. Today we're going to have uh, two services, and I hope you can be with us again tonight. Thanks for watching. Hope you have a great day. Stay safe, stay healthy, keep your hands washed, and have a great afternoon. God bless you.